Our scripture passage this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Logan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, happy to have you today. Um, we are continuing our study of the book of Ephesians this morning. And this is a letter that is all about this mystery God has revealed. We talked about it when we studied the beginning of this book. We talked about it in verse 1. It is this master plan that God has shown us. The master plan of chapter 1, verse 10, that he is going to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. But the question is, how is he going to do that? How is he going to accomplish this amazing goal of bringing unity to everything? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 starts to answer that question. He starts to show us the first step towards reconciling all things is that he has to unite lost people to himself. Now, as we start to study this this morning, I want you to know as we dive in, we're really getting into practically the core of the gospel here in these few verses. These verses contain the essence of almost everything that we believe as Christians. This is the deep theology. This is the stuff that roots our faith. But I want to remind us when we get to theological texts like this that theology isn't simply meant to live up in our heads for us to mull it over, but it is meant to strike our hearts. Whenever we study deep theology, there's another question that it has to lead us to, and that is, as we think about what God has done, as we think about everything he's done to redeem his people, we also need to consider what kind of lives should we live now as a result? What kind of people does God want his people to become? 
And I think when you study this passage, when you know the truths of this passage, when you figure out what God really has done for you, well, your entire approach to the world has to change. Your life has to become different. And so this morning when we look at it, what we're going to see is pretty simply three stages that every rescued soul has to experience. And as we look at it, Christians in this room, I hope that you will be once again brought to a place of awe, a place of wonder and worship as you think about God's mercy towards you and what he's done for you. And for anyone else here, whether you're here in this room, whether you're watching it online or maybe even listening to this recording, who knows when, I hope that as we study these passages together, you're going to discover the wonder and the beauty of this thing we call the gospel. And that you would find out that this could be yours as well. Okay, so here's what we're doing. Three stages that every Christian experiences, and they are pretty simple. Death, rebirth, and life. Let's start with death. Surveys are showing us that in recent years, the number of people with no religious affiliation whatsoever has risen dramatically. The people who check none on the religion line of the survey. So this, this idea of the rise of the nuns is something that missiologists are thinking a lot about. Now that group, the nuns, is made up of different kinds of people. There are people in that group who would consider themselves to be spiritual people, vaguely spiritual, sensitive that there is something else in this life, but they're not quite sure what. And there are people who are very passionate about their unbelief. They're committed to their worldview. And I think probably the largest group, though, is, is people who have just somehow managed to make it through most of their lives without giving any serious thought to their souls. But one thing I think carries across all the different categories of the people who check the nun box, regardless of where we, they fit in, regardless of their beliefs system, I, I think that they believe, if they wanted to believe, they could. That when they are ready, they could believe. I once had a neighbor live next door to me, and uh, she knew I was a pastor, and so we talked about things of faith from time to time. And, and she would often tell me that she intends to become a Christian someday. She wasn't, but she said, I do, I will be a Christian eventually. There's just some things I'm planning to do before then. There's some things that I know won't jive with a Christian life, and so someday I'll be a Christian, but not yet. See, people tend to think that their faith is something that belongs to them. They think that they are free thinkers. And that if the right argument would just come along, they'd be persuaded. If that last little doubt could be pushed away, then they'd believe. If that last piece of evidence would just show up, well, then they would, of course, choose faith. In other words, we, we like to think of ourselves as genuine, unbiased seekers. Free agents. 
we are completely able to choose God if we are persuaded. But God tells us a very different story. And that's what we just read at the beginning of our passage. Chapter 2 starts off by saying, And as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. So the reality is a lot more bleak than we tend to think. We are not philosophers who are unbiasedly weighing the different potential ways there are to live, but Scripture says we are dead. Apart from God, our souls are not doing anything. (laughs) They're not considering any options. They're not doing anything but being dead. We no more have the power to choose God than a dead body can choose to get up and dance. And it's incredible to think about that, right? Because as you look around our community, as you look around Lake Norman, you see lots of people who seem to be living very, in a very lively way, right? People who are very much alive. You see them on their boats with the wind in their hair. But spiritually speaking, apart from God, we are in a terrible in a desperate state, we're dead. And it's not just that we're dead. It gets even worse than that, right? It says we are dead, but then Paul goes on to say, not only are we dead, but we are enslaved. See, we think that we're following our own will. We think we're doing what we want to do. We think we are doing the things that make us happy and make us most fulfilled. But don't be deceived. Scripture says we're actually following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, that's a strange phrase, I'll admit. When I read that, it kind of reminded me of my old uh, Nintendo playing days. I used to play Mega Man. Anybody play Mega Man? I don't know if this is a big Mega Man crowd. We got one Mega Man down here. Uh, But in Mega Man, they had the bad guys. There was like Water Man, you know, there was Electric Man, there was Air Man. That's that's what came to mind as I was thinking about this. But but that's that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is trying to tell us that there are spiritual forces in this world that you cannot see. And yes, we are blessed to live in a scientifically advanced society. But there is more to this world than what our eyes can see. More to this world than simply what we can measure. And so Paul is telling us that not only are you incapable of choosing God because you're dead, but there are forces in this world that are constantly pulling you away from him. And if you don't believe that, just take a minute and and consider the kinds of things that were alluring to you this week. The kinds of things that have been tugging on you this week. 
what is this world calling you towards? If it's not those typical things, money and power and sex, well, it might be the trap of just trying to become a good person. It might be calling you to be the kind of person who, who just doesn't need a savior because I'm good. And you think, well, maybe if there is a God, uh, by the time I get up there, hopefully he'll say, good enough. You're good enough, come on in. But there is this temptation to, to build a, a reputation, to be a good person, to be the kind of person who does not need to bow down to the lordship of Jesus. See, don't be fooled. It's no accident that your heart resists the lordship of Jesus Christ. Don't think that you're going to come when you're good and ready. There is a spiritual force that will always prevent you from bowing to Jesus as your Savior. And because of that, we end up living our lives thoughtlessly pursuing our own will apart from God separated from God. And that brings us to the last thing that Paul says about death. The last part of verse 3, he says, Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now that's something we don't like to hear. That is something we, we, we don't want to think about. We kick against the idea of the wrath of God. But let me just quickly say that it is impossible to have a good God without wrath. It is impossible to have a loving God who ignores evil. I mean, talk to anybody who has endured some of the great horrors of the world. Talk to somebody who's lived through a genocide. Ask them of a good God would let the guilty go unpunished. He can't. A good God cannot look towards rebellion, towards a people who have ruined his creation, who have lived against him, and then say, no big deal. It doesn't matter. And that's exactly what we are apart from him, right? We are rebels. We are traitors. We are criminals. We are people who have chosen to live a life apart from our creator, and we deserve his wrath. We have broken his commands both unknowingly and intentionally. And think about this. In our day and age, in this moment in history, I would say that justice is maybe one of the main concerns of our time. People are in the streets crying out for justice. Well, Scripture here promises that we will have it. It tells us that our God is a God of justice. And even if that justice eludes us in this life, even if all of our systems fail us, our God will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. But where does that leave us? Those of us who are dead, who are rebellious, 
who are following our own wills, who are under his wrath and his curse. Well, that brings us to the second stage that every Christian has to experience. Rebirth. Okay, so those first verses, I'll admit, they're terrifying. The combination of those things is is pretty bleak. We are dead. We are enslaved to the powers of this world, to our own passions, and we're under God's wrath. It's a devastating picture. It's a picture of complete hopelessness. But then verse 4 comes in. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even while we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Those two words, but God. You've heard it before, right? Those might be the two greatest words in all of Scripture. Those words, they're shocking words. They are completely contrary to any kind of reason or logic. And and if you're in church every week, if you've memorized these verses, if you've heard them over and over, it's probably hard to get surprised by them anymore. But it's a shock. We were dead, folks. We were dead. We were enslaved. Our hearts were bent against God. That means we were not lovable. (laughs) We were unlovely. We were his enemies. We were like rabid animals in a trash can. But God, because of who he is, not because of who you are, not because of who I am, because of who we are, but God, because of his great love for us, made us alive in Christ. So that moment, the rebirth, that moment where you go from dead to being alive, theologians, they talk about that. They call it, uh, they call it regeneration. It's a very technical way to put it. But it's the moment when the Holy Spirit breathes life into our dead souls. Same way that God breathed life into Adam when he formed him. It's the moment when God breathes life into us. The God who created all things recreates you. He renews you. He empowers you. He opens your eyes so you can finally see him. He opens your ears so you can finally hear him calling to you. He opens your heart so that you would desire him, and he gives you the faith so that you would actually come to him. And now sometimes when that happens, it's a very dramatic moment. If you don't have a dramatic conversion story, I'm sure you've heard one before. I had a friend who was a pastor, and he told me that he had gone to seminary. He had studied scriptures day in and day out for years. He had gotten a job at a church, and he was preaching every week. And it wasn't until preaching, maybe through this very passage, I can't remember, but it wasn't until preaching that one day, as he stood in front of the congregation, the Holy Spirit opened his eyes. And he realized all of a sudden, this is true. I am under God's wrath, and I am under his curse, and I don't know him. 
And on the spot, he repented. And he believed, and his life was never the same from that moment on. And sometimes that's what it's like. Now, sometimes it's not so dramatic as that. For others, that moment of rebirth, it can be quite gradual. You come into the church, and you come in as a skeptic. And you start to read the word, and you start to be around other Christians. Maybe you attend a Bible study, or just have some dinners with a few people. You hear the gospel preached, and then one day you just realized, I believe this. I don't know when it happened, but I do. I don't know when it happened, but I know that now I cannot live without Jesus. That he's my Savior. He is my only hope. See, I want to be careful because this passage isn't meant to tell us what that rebirth is exactly going to look like. It only is telling us that it has to happen. God and God alone has to bring us from death to life. We can't do it ourselves. See, the Christian faith, you know this, but it's not about rule keeping. It's not about church attendance. It's not about how often you pray. It's not about all the things that you do. It is about being made alive in Christ. It's about being born again. In John chapter 3, Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless what? Unless they are born again. That moment of regeneration, though, it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the beginning. Paul goes on here and he says in verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So we go from being dead to being alive. But we also go from being enslaved to being seated with Christ. From being slaves to being rulers with him. We go from being under his wrath, that terrible thing, the wrath of God. We're under his wrath and then we are in his blessing. We go from his enemies to being his heirs. And what do we do to deserve that? Well, nothing. We didn't do anything. It's by grace you've been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. That's really important. Because some of you might be thinking, well, if God has chosen you, isn't that going to make you arrogant? If God has chosen you, aren't you going to start thinking that you're better than everyone else? No, I want to say the opposite is what happens. See, if anything, this is supposed to make us more humble. Because you have nothing to boast about. You did nothing to deserve your salvation. You cannot say that the reason why I believe and my neighbor doesn't, or the reason why I believe and my sibling doesn't, or my other family member doesn't, you can't say, well, it's because I'm just more spiritually sensitive than they are. You can't say, well, it's because I'm more reasonable than they are. It's because I'm smarter than they are. And when I heard it preached, I was able to choose God, and they just, well, they just haven't been. 
But Paul says, no. No, the gospel means you cannot be arrogant. You cannot boast in anything. You don't deserve it. In fact, what you deserve is the opposite. What you deserve is the condemnation. We are God's enemies under his wrath. We deserve to be forever separated from him. But God, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, makes us alive. So let's talk about that, alive. Alive, what does that mean? Are you alive? Looking out from the pulpit right now, it seems like you all are still mostly alive. The sermon hasn't gone on that long yet. We're technically living. (laughs) But let me read to you the words of Christ. John chapter 10. Familiar words. He says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That they may have life and have it abundantly. See, Jesus is saying there that there is a kind of life that you can only have when you know Jesus. Now, the kind of life he's talking about is not necessarily a happier life. Right? Remember, he tells us, in this world, we're going to have trouble. It's not necessarily a more thrilling life, especially if you join the church. You're going to get on some committees. It's not going to be thrilling at all. It's not going to be a wealthier life, necessarily. It's not going to be a more comfortable life, necessarily. So what does it mean when he says he's come to give us life and give it to the full? What does it mean for him to bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life? Well, it means that Christ gives us a life where no matter what happens to you, you can be confident that you are secure in him. You can be confident that you are, in fact, heirs to his eternal kingdom. And that when you face the trials of life, when you face those dangers, toils, and snares that we're always singing about, you will know that the entirety of your life is much more than this moment. That your life is hidden in Christ for all of eternity. That you belong to him. When he says that you can have life to the full, he means that you can know it. That you belong to him. Not just in your head, But in your heart, you can know it deep down in your bones that you are in Christ. And part of the difficulty here is I can't really explain it. I can't exactly tell you what this is like. In fact, I really like this quote from the old preacher Charles Spurgeon. He said this. He said, spiritual resurrection, the new life that we're talking about, it may be understood in theory. But it cannot be really comprehended until we ourselves have been raised from spiritual death. In the things of God, knowledge is only to be gained 
by personal experience. To understand regeneration, you have to be born again. To understand faith, as simple as it is, you have to believe. See, the the heart of this great mystery Paul is telling us about, this mystery that God is uniting all people to himself by the power of his spirit. I, I can't tell you exactly what it's like. I can't tell you exactly what it means to know God personally. But I just want to say, if you know him, you know you know him. And if you don't know him, you can. If you want to know him, you can know him. That is the wonderful news of this passage. We are dead in our sins. And that means if you want God, (laughs) it says we cannot want God apart from God. And so that means if you want God right now, if you recognize that, yeah, I am spiritually dead, you cannot see that unless God has enabled you to see that. You cannot want God unless God has already started to move in your life. His arms are open. I want to invite you, if you find yourself wanting him today, come to him. Come to him in repentance. Come to him in surrender. Come to your King Jesus. Come and know this God who tells us here that he is a God who is rich in mercy. And for the Christians here, I want you to just take a moment and be astonished that this eternal God, our eternal, infinite, heavenly Father, has chosen to know you, you, a a puny sinner. (laughs) And he's loved you, not because of your goodness, Not because of the potential he saw in you, but because of his mercy, because of his love, because of who he is. He has made you alive. And so I think that brings us to a question. If God has made us alive, how should we live? Verse 10 says, the thief comes only to steal. Oh, just kidding. That's verse 10 of John. Verse 10 of our passage says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He says, if our lives are now in Christ Jesus, then our lives should increasingly look like Jesus. Paul tells us, that this gospel message is all about God's kindness to us. It is a story of a God who has marched across eternity to bring life to the dead. A God who took on flesh, who made himself like us so that we would be able to come to him. He took on a body like ours. And he came to us when we were undeserving. 
He preached the gospel to us when we could not have possibly been any further away from him. He literally laid down his life to save us. And in that moment, we were actively rejecting him and condemning him. And so my question is, how can we be the recipients of that? How can we be pursued like that and then not pursue our neighbors the same way? How can we have been rescued from certain death and then not be in the business of rescuing everyone else? See, we're looking at deep theology here. I said that right at the beginning. Ephesians is is deep theology. It is about a God who sends his spirit out, who makes the dead alive, who goes out and saves people when they are furthest from him. He takes those who are enslaved to their passions, those who are caught up in the push and pull of our culture, those who serve the ruler of this world, and he frees them. He makes them alive. Now, I know those are kind of abstract ideas, truth be told. But what does it look like practically? What does this look like on the ground? Well, I want to read one last passage to you. It's Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 16. It says, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw Jesus eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you want to know what this looks like practically, here's what it looks like. It looks like Jesus sitting at a table with criminals sitting at a table with prostitutes and social outcasts. It's not a righteous, religious person who has removed themselves from the world, but it is a truly holy man, a servant who has prepared a feast, not for the nobles, not for the Presbyterian pastors and the good churchgoers, but for the people who are furthest from him. And so what does that look like for us today? Well, I think that's a good question. This is the question I want us to end on. What does it look like for us today? Are we doing this? Are we truly pursuing the lost in the way that we've been pursued? Is this modeled in our lives outside the church? And what about inside the church? Have we made a place for the lost here? Are we seeking them out? Some of you have adult children who have left the church. Think about them right now. Is this a place for them? Have we made space for them? Is this a place built for the lost to feel welcome? Or have we tailored this to our own preferences? And told them to get used to it. Or go find somewhere else. When you were far away. God came to you. 
made you alive. So now that we're alive, how will we use this life he's given us? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your great mercy. I thank you that the English language is not big enough to describe it and that I feel completely inadequate to explain what this means. But I thank you that you in your mercy and your grace have shown us what it means. We know you and we don't deserve it. Lord, I want to pray this morning for anyone who doesn't know you in this room anyone who wants to know you in this room or, or anyone who might be watching us wherever they are or hearing this in the sound of my voice, I pray, God, that right now they would know that you are pursuing them and that they would come to you in repentance and faith. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the ways we have not sought the lost. I pray that you'd open our eyes and that you would even right now in the minds of people in this congregation, would you give us your spirit and show us the way forward? Creative ideas, relationships they already have. God, would you work and move so that we could see this work continue in our church, we pray in Christ's name.